Our scripture reading this morning is from Proverbs chapter 14, and it's only verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads this way, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. And this is the word of the Lord, and if you are thankful for it this morning, go ahead and say thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we come to your word, as we do week in and week out, hopefully each day. May our our hearts be humble, our minds be attuned and awake. May we hear what you have to say to us. May my words reflect it accurately. And where it doesn't, Father, quiet my mouth. And Father, I ask that you would give us the grace that is ours paid for by Jesus to hear, listen, apply, and walk faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. As you know, we're continuing through Proverbs today. Uh, We'll be here for just a few more weeks, and then uh, we'll be about six weeks. Each fall, we like to take a a few weeks to to talk about the church, uh, God's vision for the church, and what that looks like. So we'll we'll be in that for about six weeks after after Proverbs, and then we'll go to the book of Hebrews. I don't know, I haven't planned it out yet, but probably a year, year and a half, something like that, we'll be in the book of Hebrews, so uh, get comfy. In Hebrews, if you want to start reading ahead for Hebrews, please do that. Uh, all right, so today we, uh, uh, we come to the topic of womanhood, femininity. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in this kind of this moment that we're in culturally, preaching to women about womanhood is quite a hot topic uh, these days. To say anything negative, unfortunately, I think is, is to say that it's all evil, um, that any expression of womanhood, to, to speak of it negatively, must mean you're condemning all of womanhood, and which is just a ridiculous thought. It's not even logical. Uh, but then also in our culture, a, a man, particularly a man from a position of power, instructing women or speaking to women about roles and such is also a big no-no in our culture. But as my notes read, as I wrote earlier this week, I love it. The opportunity to talk about biblical femininity is a delightful thing and something that we should take joy, that I, even this moment, am taking joy in. Why? Because God is good. Because his design for men and women is absolutely beautiful, stunning, and glorious, and delightful, if we'll follow his plan. Now, let me give you a caveat here at the beginning. I'm not going to caveat or qualify much of anything beyond this point, okay? It's really tempting as I was writing my script to say, well, but I don't mean this, or but I don't mean this, and like my already bloated word count would go through the roof if I was doing that. So I'm going to trust that you'll understand words in the midst of a context, that you'll assume the best, and I'm just going to say what should be said and move on. Now thinking about as we get into this, do you have the idea of wife versus woman? Wife is the trajectory for most women according to the scriptures. Not that all women will get married, but almost all are intended to get married. That's God's good design. 
I don't know if you've thought about this, but when it comes to biblical wisdom and calling in this world, the two, the idea for womanhood and wife, being a wife, they overlap so much because in the scriptures, the idea that singleness, both men and women, is just as equally an ideal is actually foreign to the scriptures. We're not saying, I'm not saying that singleness is wrong or sinful necessarily, but to treat singleness as the norm or to just flip a coin. It's just, you know, just do A or B. Whatever your heart desires is not a concept in the Scriptures. So as I talk about biblical femininity, and then in a few weeks I'll come back around and we'll talk about biblical masculinity, it will largely be aimed at the married woman. But still has great application. Still has great application to a single lady. So I pray that you would apply it as such. As we approach this particular passage, he says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. I have seen both of these women. I personally know women that fit both of these categories. I've pastored women in both of these categories. I've watched women who have brick by brick torn down and are currently tearing down their house. What's amazingly sad, just from my observation, is that most of them can't see the bricks laying on the ground around them. Or they blame the bricks laying on the ground around them on other people, or they pick them up and throw them at other people. At the same time, I've watched women who have built brick by brick a beautiful house and are building a beautiful house. And what's amazing is that these homes display the glory of God in such a unique and beautiful and biblical way that is a delight to those who are in that house and to those who are around that house. So as we continue in, a wise woman, just at the outset, I want you to see that the, the wise woman is a delightful and good thing. The Scriptures tell us, first of all, that it's a divine gift. That to have a wise woman is a divine gift. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He's speaking of the importance of a good wife. If you understand that in the context, Proverbs 18 is not saying just any wife, but the wise wife, the excellent wife. And he's speaking of the importance of a good wife. She is something, ultimately, that the Lord gives. It's not something that you acquire. She is a grace to a man. She is, she is a gift that he does not deserve. Proverbs also tells us that, that this wise woman, this wise wife, is, in, uh, is of inestimable worth. That she is of great value. Proverbs 31.10. This is the one, if you've read any Proverbs on womanhood, you probably went to Proverbs 31 and not 18 like we did this morning. It says, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She does him good and not harm. Speaking of his husband, or her husband. A man on mission for God. So someone who is a husband who is living for God, who has a wise woman 
will have a woman that he sees and perceives as doing good for him. And what a treasure that is. It's not, well, the wife just stays out of his way, but that she does him good as he serves the kingdom of God. Now, on the flip side, if a husband is not serving the kingdom of God and yet has a wise wife, she will seem to get in his way to him. But a man following the Lord who has a wise wife, a wise woman, she will do him great good. The first main five, really just two points, two main points. The first one is this, a foolish woman tears down her house. A foolish woman tears down her house. She probably does this without consciously thinking, I'm tearing down my house. So what I want to do in this first point is I, I want to give you Ladies, particularly, steps to tear your house down one brick at a time. That might seem counterproductive in a sermon, but I want to give you the steps to tear your house down. The first one is this. Neglect a robust knowledge of God. If you want to tear your house down, neglect a robust knowledge of God. Proverbs 9.10, and there's many passages that I could have picked to, to, uh, to prove, uh, to argue this point. But in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So there's this knowledge of God that is coupled with fear of God and wisdom and insight. It's kind of a package deal. So if a woman is to be wise... It begins with the fear of God and the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One and this insight. So if you want to tear down your house, then ladies, spend each day going after your task list, whether that's your career, your household, all of those check boxes. Do that with great effort, saying something akin to, I'm good with God, we can just meet up tomorrow. I'll just spend time in the Bible tomorrow. You know, I don't need to be well-versed in the Bible. I just, I just need to know how to feel good about God, and I need to know how to raise my kids, at least keep them alive, and do my job and career and keep the house running. As long as I do those things, we're good. But ladies, listen, it's because you were made, and we'll talk more about this later, but you were made for hard things. You were created for difficult things, for struggling through lots that when push comes to shove, you're going to get the job done. And also, you couple that with the fact that you were created uniquely to care for other people, to lay your life down for other people in daily life. Here's the danger, is that you will make everything in life and everyone else, including your kids and your husband, the priority over and above your knowledge, and your walk with the Lord Most High. It's easy to put breakfast over and above knowing God through His Word. To put husband over and above knowing God through His Word. To put your children's homework or sports over and above knowing God through His Word. So, if you want to tear down your house, then neglect a robust knowledge of God. Second, embrace your emotions as God. 
embrace your emotions as God if you want to tear it down. Proverbs 29, 11, we referenced this a couple weeks ago. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man, or certainly a wise woman, quietly holds it back. There's many other passages we could go to, but listen, basic Christian discipleship involves self-control over your emotions. This is certainly not just applicable to women. It's applicable to all of us. But, but there's this like sense among Christians even, this idea, particularly for ladies, that you should make sure you get out all of your emotions, especially on your husband. If not, then you're somehow not standing up for yourself, or you're not being the real you, you're not being authentic, you're not being the real, you're, you're just being a pushover, and so on and so forth. Even among Christians, this idea that you just got to get it all out. You should just unload it all. Make sure you don't bottle anything up. But we're not talking about bottling emotions up. We're talking about being in control over those emotions. There's a big difference. Listen, the more you are given over to your emotions, the more, I don't think you realize this, but the more you're able to be controlled. Whether you're productive or not. Whether or not you're a good parent. What other people say or how others make you feel or the myriad of circumstances in each of your day-to-days, the more you're given over to your emotions, the more easily you're controlled by anything and everything else. Listen, your emotions are a terrible God. They're a terrible God to serve. And let me be frank. If your emotions are your God you're a terrible person to be around as well. Not just, listen to me, not just terrible when your emotions are in control over you, when you have succumbed, but terrible in general because the people around you don't know who they're going to get when they come into your presence. Just to, again, just to be frank, it's a terrible place to be a kid. It's a horrible place to be a husband. It's a horrible place to be a pastor. It's a terrible place to be a friend. Can you imagine a child who walks in the room or comes home not knowing which mother they're going to get? Or a husband who gets home and doesn't know which wife he's going to have for the evening? Can you imagine walking into a conversation with someone? I'm sure we can all imagine this. Someone who is supposed to be your most intimate friend and not knowing which wife or mother is going to be present. If you want to tear down your home, then parent your emotions like the world parents its children. Let them have what they want. Let them rule the house. Don't discipline them and make them behave well. But ladies, you can do that. And so can us men. Again, we're coming in a few weeks. But you can discipline your emotions. You can have self-control over your emotions. You can express them in the right and appropriate ways. Next, if you want to tear down your house, do your husband's job for him. We're on this in a few weeks. But in the home, if you want to tear down your house, in the home with the family, you make sure that your agenda happens. You make all the decisions. You govern all the church family or all the family commitments. You make all the financial decisions. You lead in all the Bible teaching. 
you do your husband's job. You do your husband's job outside the home. You go build a career exercising, conquering, and power over the world like he's supposed to. You take his authority, envy for it, long for it, and covet his authority in the home and in the world. Do your husband's job for him. Next, let your tongue run wild. Let your tongue run wild. If you want to tear down the house brick by brick, let your tongue run wild. Proverbs 9.13 says this, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Proverbs 25.24, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, I have a funny picture. I don't put it up yet, but I have a funny picture I want to show you. This was sent to me about a month and a half ago, and I, I wanted to show it a couple weeks ago. Um, but as many of you guys know, there you go. Do you, I don't know if you can tell who that is, but that's Pastor Jeff sitting up on the corner of his roof, and Bryn, his wife, is sitting. Can you all tell? It's supposed to be funny. Haha. Thank you. They sent that picture to me about a month ago with the caption of this passage underneath of it. <laughs> it's better to live in the corner of the housetop than a roof shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, now for, the, for the record, it was Bryn who sent that to me. There you go. What a delight. You can take that down. Let your tongue run wild. Be quarrelsome. Be quarrelsome. Again, I'm, I'm tempted to caveat. There are appropriate times and ways in which wives and women stand up for what's right and biblical and such. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being a quarrelsome person. Listen, according to the Proverbs, the foolish woman is loud. But it's interesting. What's that next line? She knows nothing. There's a relationship to how little she knows and how loud she gets. The less she knows, the more she talks. This is, again, this is not women who speak. We're not saying there is no speaking. But the Proverbs give a, 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 this correlation between the folly, the foolish, and their loudness and yet how little they know. This is the woman who always has an issue with something. The wife who always has an issue with something. The woman who always wants to nitpick something that was said, or something that was done, or something that wasn't done, or something that wasn't said. Listen, I'm, I'm not married to one of these, thank God. But, but I've pastored many of them. I've always got, a, always got a concern they need to talk about. Maybe another example, the wife who always has to challenge her husband's perspective or thoughts. Always. Listen, if you, you know who you are. You just always got that urge. Listen, I know this because I can be that person. I can be that person that wants to quarrel. I can be that person who always has a different perspective or always has something that maybe you're not thinking about or always has something that just want to just jab it in there. Always looking for a fight. Quarrelsome. Let your tongue run wild. You will tear your house down. Proverbs say it's better for your husband to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. To use some modern language in quoting 
someone else here. A mouthy woman is a pain in the neck. Now, as a caveat here, that doesn't mean that all women are mouthy or that all women are pains in the neck, right? You would be taking what I'm saying way too far. But the foolish ones are. Okay? Just to be clear. Let your tongue run wild. Now, to all you men, before we get on to the second point, now to all you men, especially the ones who want to elbow your wife right now, or maybe the ones who are sinking into the pew trying to hide right now, before you start thinking that I'm talking about your wife and how you wish I would keep going, if your wife is this way, it's at least your responsibility to do something about it. At worst, it's partially your fault she is this way. Because you led her to be this way. It could have been from abdication, but you led her to be this way. It may have been by not saying what you should have said when you should have said it. Listen, you are first and foremost responsible, I mean, beyond her own responsibility. You are the next in line responsible for her growth into Christ-likeness. Your responsibility. It's not first and foremost your pastor's responsibility to disciple her to be like Jesus. That's yours. Listen, Ephesians 5 says a husband is to wash his wife with the word. Listen, husbands, you don't get the excuse, well, I don't know the Bible like she does, or I'm not as smart as she is. That's probably true for many of you. But Paul doesn't give you that out. Paul does not give you that. You're responsible to wash her with the word. You're responsible. If she fits the role description above, you've probably not been doing your job, husbands. Second point. A wise woman builds her house. A wise woman, though, builds her house. I want to commend a few books for you to read, ladies and, and husbands. Listen, husbands, one of the greatest things I ever did was study what a biblical woman should look like. It began for me like, I was of a particular interest, it began kind of late summer last year. Uh, and not for preaching purposes, not for church, but because I realized I didn't have the chops meaning I didn't know enough of the Word of God in order to lead my wife into a more robust and beautiful and glorifying picture of what a godly woman looks like. So I would commend to both of you to read a few books. Here's a, a couple, a, a three of them. Virtuous Woman, you could write that down by Nancy Wilson. A book, Building Her House by the Same. Virtuous Woman, Building Her House. And third, Even Exile by Rebecca Merkel. These, these books have had a profound impact on me, my family, my teaching, especially Merkel's book, Even Exile. I'm going to quote her a bunch. You'll know when I'm quoting her. Her book is such a deep treasure. I know many of you have read it. I hope today is a fresh reminder. Back to Proverbs 14.1. The wisest of women builds her house, but 
folly with her own hands, she tears it down. Now I want to talk about how do we build our house. Women, how do you build your house? First of all, a wise woman builds her house by pursuing the Lord. A wise woman builds her house by first and foremost pursuing the Lord. I forget who has said it and who I heard say it, who was saying it, but someone said at some point, uh, what people need most from you is your personal holiness. Wives, what your family needs most from you is your personal holiness, your pursuit of the Lord, and not just living a life of, quote, not sinning or sinning not that much, but that you would have a robust knowledge of the Lord. Let's go to a, a quite hot topic or a quite hot passage here. First Timothy 2, 11 through 12 says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, while the world around us freaks out about the idea of being submissive, staying quiet, and not teaching, I think it's easy for us to miss something really crucial in this passage, and that is, ladies, our Lord Jesus Christ expects you to learn. He expects you to know Him, to study Him, to be in the Scriptures. He expects this of you. The expectation is that you would know God faithfully and fully. That you would actually pour hours a week into knowing the Scriptures, into knowing Him. That you would be a theologian. That you would have a rich and robust knowledge of God just the same as the men. If you want to be a wise woman who builds her house, you must pursue Knowing the Lord. Next, a wise woman builds her house by pursuing, pursuing virtue. To be a virtuous woman. Virtue is really, in my words, just another way of saying the inner character quality of someone. Specifically someone who knows the Lord in our context here. Proverbs 19.14 House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. To quote one commentator, he said, this Proverbs does not pick on women as women, only on those who disrupt social harmony in the family. Proverbs reserves, though, its highest praise for virtuous women. So, so I mean, the, the Proverbs, and even today, like, we're not picking on women as women. How about women who are foolish. Yet the Proverbs also reserve their highest praise for a woman who is wise and virtuous. I, listen, there's been so many times I've engaged women struggling through this idea of like, well, what's my calling in life? Am I to be a mom? Am I to have a wife? Am I to be a wife? Is, is it to be this career or that career? And so often I just want to say this. You've got the cart before the horse, dear sister. I wouldn't be worrying about all that stuff until you have thoroughly pursued being a virtuous woman. And I'm certain that if you will concern yourself with virtue first and foremost, the rest will likely come much easier. Listen, without virtue... Without virtue, without this inner character, you can only keep up the facade for so long. 
You can only keep up the fake picture for so long. Nancy Wilson says this, Feminine virtue includes a toughness that we may not normally associate with it. Boaz told Ruth, quote, All the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. End quote. The word virtuous is the feminine equivalent of a Hebrew phrase translated man of great wealth. In other words, a woman with this kind of reputation, namely a virtuous woman, has influence and moral authority. She has standing in her community. She is a woman of stature. Second Peter 1, end quote with Nancy there. Second Peter 1, verse 5 through 8 says this, For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see what there at the beginning? Now certainly this is applicable to, to more than just women, but... It does men as well, but look at that. Make every effort to supplement your faith with what? Virtue. You know what that means? It means we need to add virtue to our faith, pursuing virtue and adding it to our faith. It's something that must be pursued. Here's an example or a list of these virtues. Patience, domesticity, gratitude, modesty, chastity, Loyalty, kindness, courage, humility, wisdom, prudence, contentment, cheerfulness, diligence. She's a woman of stature. She has an an influence and a moral authority in her community. So ladies, I know this is a hard question for you to ask. But does your husband and your kids view you as a person with moral authority and standing because of your virtue? Husbands, I would encourage you to not measure your wife against yourself, but to measure her against the Word. It's really easy, especially for you lazy husbands, to say, well, she's better than me. And then proceed as though she's arrived. Measure her against the word. Don't measure her against yourself. For good or bad. Measure her against the word. And you should measure yourself against the word, dear sister. Next, a wise woman builds her house by understanding her God-given orientation. A wise woman builds her house by understanding her God-given orientation orientation. Now, I don't mean this gender orientation nonsense, but role orientation. Role orientation. See, in Genesis and throughout, we don't have time to dive deep, but just continue reading from the liturgy we started earlier this this morning. But I'm just going to speak broadly here. If you look at Genesis and you see the role that Adam's given and the Eve's given and you see how she's created and so on and so forth, the man is oriented toward outside the home, meaning his work. If he's putting his hand to the plow, it is toward outside the home. 
He, to use the term back in, in the garden, his role is to, Adam and Eve were to, to bring order to the chaos of the rest of the world. They were to expand the boundary markers of Eden. Adam was, to use that, that example, that picture, Adam was to take the next acre. He was to go out into the thorn bushes and the chaos of the next acre. He was to go out and take it to bring order to it, dominion, conquering it, dividing the land. She is oriented towards the home. Here's what I mean by that. And again, I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more. Her orientation is towards life-giving, beauty-making, glorifying that next acre that was taken, to bring life to it. Everything that, that a wife, that a, that a woman is called to do is for the explicit and direct purpose of the home, the kids, the household, a safe place for her husband, a safe place for him to follow the Lord. Listen, a single woman can still do this, even as she has a job outside the home. So, so just for, again, I told you I wasn't going to make any caveats. I'm not going to make too many caveats. How about that? This doesn't mean that a wife cannot work outside the home. My wife works outside the home, and she will likely always have a job outside the home. And a single woman can still do this, even if she has a job outside the home. She can still be aimed at life-giving, beauty-making, community-drawing and building and mending. She can still build a home that welcomes people into it, that's hospitable, she can still support the other, the men around who are called to divide and conquer. She can still nurture children, even when she has none of her own. As and I, our kids are, are educated at a school that's, that's under the philosophy of a late 1800s philosophy children's uh, educator named Charlotte Mason. She was a single woman never married, never had any kids, who has had some of the largest, most profound impact on the nurturing, life-giving, building, educating of children. It's just amazing. She was a single woman. A wise woman builds her house by understanding her God-given orientation. One last thought on that is I think about a lady who's oriented towards her home, if you look at Proverbs 31, as she goes out into the marketplace, as she looks at a field and says, that field is good for crops, as she does this, her, her goal is not taking the next acre. Her goal is, what can I get from there to bring back to my home? What can I get from this that will enhance the home? As where the husband is, is, yes, he needs to be focused on enhancing his home, but his primary orientation is, how do we bring order to the next acre of chaos for the kingdom of God and his glory? Next, a wise woman builds her house by subduing. A wise woman builds her house by subduing. So let's talk about this idea of subduing. God didn't create Eve for Adam, listen to me carefully, because Adam was lonely. Let's just get rid of that garbage for a moment, okay? Listen, Adam walked in the garden with God. 
I don't think he was lonely. Instead, he created Eve for Adam because Adam needed help. Adam could not do the work on his own. He needed a wife who could work alongside him, who could be his helping hand, who could bring more life, that would give more help to do the work. What do you think this be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the image of God? What do you think that was about? It was about bringing more order out of the chaos so that it would exemplify the order of God. And Adam, and Adam could not do that on his own. And Adam and Eve together, just together themselves, could not do that on their own. They would need more image bearers. They would need more help. Women were created, listen to me ladies, for real, true, hard, dirty, messy, mentally challenging, physically exhausting, and emotionally draining work. This is, this is hopefully painting quite the different picture than the, than the barefoot, pregnant, doormat, submissive wife picture that traditionalists have painted. Because that's a bunch of garbage too. Merkel says this, and women were created by God to run, to charge at things, to work like crazy. I think this is actually why women can be incredibly successful in the corporate world, because contrary to the beliefs of traditionalists who think that weaker vessel means that women are too tender to do anything much, women are actually capable of killing themselves for others. If a woman successfully replaces a family with a career in her personal priorities, she is capable of laying herself down for it to an almost absurd degree. I think part of the problem is that women have been convinced that the only real hard and difficult work is the work that their husband is called to do. That's where the true meaningful work is. No, ladies, the, there is true, good, meaningful, hard, messy, challenging work to do for the household. It's part of why our, so much of our households are a mess because there's no one there doing the job. So what are you trying to subdue, ladies, wives, women? Look at Titus 2, verse 3 through 5. Older women... So we're talking about mentoring, discipling. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You see, is this working at home? Again, this does not mean that wives can't have a job and so on and so forth, but it means what is my primary focus? This also looks different, like when you don't have kids, like you can, you can probably afford to spend more time in a, in a job outside of the home when you don't have kids or if when you're single, like these, these, there, is, there is application, so don't, don't, don't take this and just flatten everything. There's different situations and different unique moments and, and so on and so forth. But Titus is telling these older women to instruct them. And, he, and, and there's, this, there's this part of working at the home. Merkel paints a great picture 
Think of what this feminine subduing looks like in working at the home. She says this, use your position as homemaker to create homes that are utterly compelling. Where the love and the delight and the joy and the gratitude for all of God's blessings are translated into how a table is set, how the walls are painted, how the rooms invite you to come in and enjoy them, where everything about the home preaches a sermon of the goodness of God and the joy he takes in the smallest of details. Certainly, again, not limited to the home. But there has to be a primary focus on it. Again, even if she works outside the home, which I'm not, listen, I'm not condemning that. I'm not saying that that's evil. You're sinning because you have a job where you make money, and that's not what we're saying. But if she works outside the home, the aim must be in making the home more potent, more glorious, more compelling. Working outside the home should not suck the home dry. I think part of the problem is that women have been duped into thinking that money for the home will make the home more beautiful necessarily. But what is money when the dinner table is terrible? I don't just mean the taste of the food. But what is money when the parenting of your children is terrible? What is money when the home is in chaos when your husband gets home. I don't mean just kids running around. But what is money when the spiritual aroma of your home and your marriage is like that of a sewer? And what is money when pagans are indoctrinating your kids? What is money? What is it? There can be times where bringing home money is a good thing for the home. There is time, certainly. But but don't make the assumption. What I'm saying is the wise woman's not going to make the assumption that bringing home more money will make my home better. It might actually make it worse. In fact, there's a good chance it will. But you were made to subdue, subdue right alongside Adam. Which, again, I think part of it is we've been duped into thinking more money will make everything better, can make the house run better. And then we've been duped into thinking that the only real meaningful work is outside the home. While the home is left in ruins and being torn down brick by brick, you were created to do Hard work to subdue right alongside Adam, right alongside your husband. Next, a wise woman builds her house by filling. By filling. Adam could not fill the earth with other image bearers on his own, right? He could not recreate or create more little Adams on his own. Now, listen, God could have made it that way. You understand that, right? God could have. But, you know, contrary to popular belief, men cannot have women, or men cannot have babies. He needed a wife to fill the earth. But our world has been in rebellion against this. 
The pill was created as a means to avoid womanhood. Women, just go build your career, was created as a means to avoid womanhood. Abortion was created as a means to avoid womanhood. Listen, abortion has not been fundamentally a war on babies. Yet it is terrible and disgusting and murder and all of that. It has been more fundamentally a war on womanhood. The murdering of babies was the casualty of the feminist war on womanhood. You fix the problem of abortion when you fix the problem of feminism and restore biblical femininity. Now listen, I, I think the, the Dobbs case and all that, yeah, praise God, praise God. It's, a, it's an incremental step in the right direction. But the more fundamental issue is this freeing of women from their God-given biological design. Even Christians have bought into some of this garbage. Let me quote Merkel on this. She says this, The battle is now so completely won that even many married Christian couples think of birth control almost as a sacrament. And many treat the idea of babies as an optional add-on to their relationship. We live in a society which despises Eve's fruitfulness, tolerating it only when it's a sort of self-conscious decision. A baby added on as a little garnish on top of a successful career like the small flourish of kale on the side of your dinner plate. Instead, listen, listen ladies, I don't know if you thought about the beauty that God's designed you to have children, to fill the earth with children. Everything about you was meant for mothering, from the stretching of ligaments for childbirth to breastfeeding to your proclivity to be tender and soft and gentle and nurturing. These things were meant for the purpose of filling and bringing life to the next acre of land. What a beautiful thing. Let me ask you this. Are you shrugging your responsibility to fill? What's the magic number of children? How about that? Listen, it doesn't mean you have to have a certain number of children or that families with five or 10 or 20 are more godly or that every woman even has to have kids. But that is the general God-given trajectory is to fill the earth. So you could be, though, shrugging them in number. I would challenge you to think about that. Okay, this is enough, right? We've had enough kids, so now we can go live the life we want, right? Got to protect those retirement years. So enough is enough. Maybe you should have more kids. Maybe you should have one graduating when you're turning 60. This is thoughts I've had. Maybe you had your one. Maybe you had your two, your three, your four, or your five, and now you feel like you've checked that box, and now life is all about you again. Listen, I'm just expressing my own struggles. Listen, filling is not just about birthing, but raising as well. It's about raising them as well. You could be shrugging them by birthing them and then handing them off to someone else to raise daycare, another school, grandparents. 
And then all we have to do is parent them on the weekends and make sure they have food. And they don't kill each other. Now, listen, I send my kids to a school four days a week, so I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying you need to think through these. Are you filling the earth? And filling is not just birthing. You can see what problems that gets our world into. But about raising them as well. But also, particularly for those who don't have children and those who are and, and married or those who don't have children and are, are single, but feeling is not just about childbearing. Even though it is about childbearing, it's not just about it. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, says to fill the earth with Christ followers. Listen, the mission of God in Matthew 28 was not given to just men, but to all people. And so how do women help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all? How do women fulfill the Great Commission? Helping people know, love, you know, obey, know and obey all that Jesus Christ has commanded. How do they do that? I think we're tempted. I think Merkel brings this up, if I remember correctly. They're tempted at this point just to talk about preachers, teachers, elders, missionaries, and what roles they can have and what roles they shouldn't have. But I want to ask the question, what about in the mundane? That's the question we ask all the time here from the pulpit. What about the mundane moments of life? How do women help people know, love, and obey Jesus in the mundane moments of life? How are they uniquely taking a part in the mission of God? Let me paraphrase Merkel, and then I want to quote her again. But when men get about the mission... They are very linear and direct, and they expect people to conform. Now listen, that's a good and necessary thing. Our world is trying to convince us that that direct, linear expectation to conform is evil. It's a good and necessary thing. We must have men who lead this way. Again, these are generalizations. Women, though, when they get about the mission, they usually do it by making it attractive and beautiful. Listen, that's what you were created for. Not to dull the edges of your husband's directness. Not to make him into a woman, but to do your role in making it compelling. To add to it. To make it beautiful. Merkel says this, Our job as women is to take the abstract, the cerebral, the intellectual, and make it lovely, make it beautiful, make it attractive. It's not that men, listen listen to her caveat here, it's not that men are supposed to be involved in teaching theology and women aren't. It's that men are to teach it one way and women are to teach it another. If men are the words, women are the music. If men are the skeleton, women are the flesh. If men are the radio waves, women are the amplifiers. It has nothing to do with saying that women aren't smart enough or tough enough or gifted enough or anything of the kind. But God loves harmony. He loves the same tune playing out in different strains of the music, intertwining, harmonizing, and each making the other more powerful by virtue of the fact that each is doing something different than the other. God is writing a song with harmony, and the feminists want to insist that everyone stay on the same note all the time. If truth were a salted caramel, the feminists would like to take away the caramel, caramel, 
Well, how, you want to talk about taking, sucking the power out of the moment? There we go. Let's try it again. If truth were a salted caramel, the feminists would like to take away the caramel and just serve you the salt. That's how you get to be a part of the mission of God in the everyday life. Next, a wise woman builds her house by helping. By helping. I have one more point after this. But builds her house by helping. 1 Corinthians 11.8 For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now look at that. I'm, I'm not sure that we could be much more offensive than that passage. But Paul is making a distinction between men and women and their roles. And here's what we're tempted to do. Listen to me very carefully. Because this is what our world is doing. This is what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to envy what the other person gets to do or what the other person and what's said about the other person, the other gender. We're tempted to say that one is better than the other. And here's the reality. Just because two things are different doesn't make one better than the other. Just because one is made for the other and not one for the other doesn't make one better than the other if you followed all the others. Merkel quotes Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, I won't quote him too. He says this, If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the flower beside the fruit, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. You guys just made us different. It doesn't make one better than the other. And our culture says, though, if you tell me there's something I can't do or something I must do, and the other person gets to do it, but I can't do it, then that means that person's better. And that these things are different. And one's better. In this sense, one's not better. Wives, let me press in on this helping. You can't help your husband if life is always about your plans and your agenda. You can't help, you can't, you're not going to be a helper if it's always about you. Some of you do this by quiet manipulation. You're powerful and you know how to get your husband to do it your way. Listen, to the point, some of you are always on a mission to get your husband to help you with your plans and your agenda. Listen, it doesn't mean you don't ever get to do what you want. Listen, don't, don't go that far so that you can dismiss everything else I say. But if it's always your plans, then you can't be a helper. It makes you the one being helped. When he gets home in the evening, or whenever he gets off work, whose agenda is it? Or the schedule and the commitments of your family, who manages that? Sports, dinner dates, parties, who's making all those plans? Who is setting the framework for those plans? I'm not talking about who actually puts it in the calendar. I don't care about that. Listen, husbands, you're responsible for the commitments your family makes. If your family is too busy, that's your fault. That's on you. But whose plan, whose agenda? 
Now, in a bit, when in a few weeks we get to the husband's agenda, the husband who's responsible for this, the question for him is going to be, is it just about him, or is it about God and what's best for his family? Because he can easily, a husband can use and manipulate his wife and his family to serve his own selfish purposes. That's the other ditch. We don't want to fall into that ditch. Next, figure out how to be a helper to your particular man. Why is it going to help you? Merkel points this out. Such a helpful thing. (laughs) Don't try to be a helper to the man you want. Instead, be a helper to the man God has given you. She says this, I quote, What does it look like to help? to sacrifice, to glorify, and to be fruitful if your husband is a plumber who likes to hunt and hates parties. It's a little bit like me. <laughs> it looks completely different than if I were a beekeeper who like, or than if he were a beekeeper who likes cross, crossword puzzles and gardening or an academic who enjoys opera and dinner parties. Every man is unique, and being a helper to him means that you have to translate, to take an abstract principle like helping and translate it into something tangible. So ask this question. For your husband, what is his particular mission in life? How is he called to knock down the next acre of chaos? It could be by fixing leaky faucets. It could be by ordering people's finances. It could be by developing software to protect our country. How can you be a helper to that particular man? It could be the one who would prefer just to stay home and not go to big parties. That would be me. It could be the one that wants to go parties all the time. It could be by helping balance him out. Because if he doesn't want to go anywhere ever, you might have to drag him along every once in a while. Or if all he wants to do is go out and about and you throw dinner parties and stuff, maybe he needs to calm down a little bit. How can you be a helper to that particular man? One of the things I'm thankful for for my wife that we do regularly is she'll ask me how how do you think it would be best for me to spend the time the Lord has given me? I've not asked her to ask me that question. I think that's her own outworking of the scriptures. And I did not ask her for permission to say this. But I'm thankful for that. How would you, would he, because what she's saying, she, what's the direction, where's our mission, where are we headed? How do I best fit into that? How can I best help you in that? Those who have no husband, you still, listen to me, take the truth of the gospel and translate it into beautiful and compelling and and incarnate life which preaches the goodness of God to everyone surrounding you. Lastly, a wise woman builds her house by glorifying. A wise woman builds her house by glorifying. I'm going to read to you a, a longer passage here. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 12. You'll have to hang with me here and we'll, we'll land this plane. 
Verse 3, but I want you to understand, this is Paul speaking, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women or woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Listen, that, that passage deserves like 10 sermons, okay? So I'm just going to zero in on a couple items in this passage. It's easy for you to read this passage and to say that the wife is somehow at the bottom of the list. That she's somehow inferior to man. That's not what this passage is true, or not what this passage is saying. If it's saying that women are inferior to men, then the passage is also saying that Christ is inferior to God. If you're going to interpret it that way, you have to interpret both. And that would be denying the reality of the Trinity, which would make you a heretic. Paul goes on even at this point in the context to make it clear that men and women are equals. Right there in that verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, speaking of Adam and Eve coming from the rib, so man is now born of woman, meaning she gives birth to man and to women. So, and all things ultimately are for God. That's Paul's point. They're equals. But what does this mean? In verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of, God, of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What's he mean by that? Man, that sounds weird, right? Man is the image of the glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. That sounds a little bit like, a, like inferior, right? I think I'm, I'm just going to quote Merkel, because I can't figure out a better way to say it. She says this, Man was created as the image and glory of God, but then along came the woman, second, in an even more concentrated form, the glory of the glory of God. If men are the beer, women are the whiskey, the most potent, strong, and intoxicating version of the glory of God, not the weakest and most watered down. And ironically, this is exemplified by her being created second. And listen to these words. As an equal, but a helper. As an equal who willingly submits to her head. In fact, that submission itself is what's so glorious and that is because the willing submission, follow me here, of one equal to another, a submission offered out of love and not out of servitude, is a submission that pictures 
Christ. Christ, who as Philippians 2, 6 tells us, being made, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ was equal with God, but willingly humbled himself. He offered himself up in submission to God, the Father, but not because he was inferior. When a woman submits to her husband, her head, she is picturing that. She is picturing Christ willingly submitting as an equal to the head, his Father, God. But what is the end of the story when Christ submits to the Father? even to the point of death on the cross. It says, wherefore, Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, wherefore God hath highly exalted Jesus and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That submission, Merkel says, ends in exaltation. It ends in glory. He is lifted up and given the name that is above every name. When Christ, end quote, when Christ, who is equal with God, willingly out of love, submits to God, who is his equal, even to the point of death, he is exalted. What's happened? The picture there is glory. Wives, be preoccupied with glorifying, meaning making something beautiful, being a magnifying glass to something that's beautiful. God created you for this. There are ways in which you naturally do this. How you take a room in a house and make it beautiful compared to your husband's ugly garage. How you take the relationship with your husband, and as Merkel calls it, you make a fat little baby. Or how you fix your hair or dress. Or the way you turn this phrase called hospitality and you turn that into a party where people are loved and welcomed. Let me quote Merkel again a couple more times here. But one thing we see again and again in both Scripture and in nature is that fruitfulness never comes by itself. There is never any spring unless there is first a winter. There is never any resurrection unless there has first been a death. There is no flower growing that did not first begin as a seed that went into the ground and died, that cracked open, that broke in order that life could come from it. There is no Easter unless there is first a Good Friday. That is why submission is so essential to our roles. Without submission, there could be no true glory. 
Without death, there could be no life from the dead. Without a seed going into the ground, no life could come up from that ground. When a woman submits, when she lays herself down, when she, like Christ, offers herself up to the death of humility in submission to someone who is an equal, that is the field in which glory grows. Listen, ladies, you are glory multipliers. How does it grow? How does it grow? It only grows when you are appointed at something outside yourself. Ultimately, when you're appointed at God. The glory dies when you begin to look at yourself, your needs, your rights, your self-esteem, your fulfillment, all the things that the world would say. If you grasp at those things, you will surely lose them. Let me end with this quote. Again, by Rebecca Merkel. When we lay on the altar that which is dearest to us, when we bury it in the ground, God gives it back to us glorified. Feminine glory is fruitful. It produces, it builds, it creates, and it does so in ways that are profound and staggering and surprising and beautiful and frequently messy and hilarious and ridiculous. Fruit is never, ever tidy, and building things always makes a mess. So keep your eye on the harvest and realize that in this world God made the mud is an essential ingredient. So be the glory of your husband. Be the concentrated, intoxicating, incarnate poetry that tells the story of death and resurrection and then throw yourself into the task of glorifying. Be fruitful. Build your house. Work hard. Be ambitious. Be productive. Learn more. Run harder. Take the gifts that God has given you, the desires He has given you, the constraints that He has given you, and then figure out a way to weave those into something glorious Glorious, something compelling, a beautiful aroma that can't be contained and that beckons a broken world to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to teach your word and to speak through your word. Father, I, our world has so perverted this thing called womanhood. Even in my own soul, there are still remnants of the filth of the pagan culture around us. Father, by your grace, by your grace and your mercy through your word and the power of your spirit, even my own soul, you have and are currently setting free Father, I pray that in these next moments that you would help the ladies in our church to see that they were created for something so dearly beautiful and crucial and difficult 
yet delightful. And Father, that you would help us as men to understand this as well. That we would not get in their way. That we would not suppress their flourishing, but that we would be with them and encourage them and give them the tools and the resources they need to do and exercise the way that God's created them. Father, thank you that we get to see as men this incredible, tangible picture of Christ submitting to his equal as a wife by your grace out of love submits to her equal her husband not to men but to her husband Father thank you for the grace of your spirit to work these things in us For only when we die to ourselves are we resurrected in life with Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.